I'm probably going to have to be a little bit quick here. Um, apparently, bankers aren't so good with clocks because uh, he ran over a few minutes. So I'll, I'll try to make up a little bit of it. I have the full. You're going to give me the full 30? Okay. Damn. Should have finished the presentation. Okay. Well, anyway, I had such a good excuse right off the right off the top. Title is, of course, trading the trading the resource bear the resource bull market, and I realize uh, most of you probably raise your eyebrows with the bull market part of it. Uh, I said a year ago, pretty much, that the uh, resource stocks had bottomed, which they have. I also said they wouldn't go anywhere terribly fast, and indeed they haven't. Uh, I'm a lot more comfortable than I was then, even that uh, we have in fact seen a bottom. Uh, these things take time to develop. That's especially true when you've been through a really bad bear market and you've got a lot of companies that are essentially broke. So in order to pull the train, you have a relatively small percentage of well-managed companies that have good projects and have money, and they've pretty much got to do all the, all of the horsepower when it comes to the indexes. So I don't expect to see some kind of huge liftoff, although I did earlier this year called for a 30% gain on the venture. I still think we're going to see that. Um, that's not as impressive as it probably sounds like. I mean, 30% on the S&P is pretty impressive. 30% on the venture is a lot easier to do because you're dealing with stuff that's inherently a lot more volatile and you're coming off a pretty horrible market. So 30% is not a, you know, it's not fantastic. That, that would be a good year. Most of that I expect to come in the fall because it generally does. These stocks do a fairly strong seasonality. Even in the modern day and age when people are working all over the world, not just in northern Canada, but essentially the fall is the best time generally for commodities. It's the best time for juniors and for venture stocks. So in that sense, the timing of this conference is actually quite good. How do you take advantage of that? Uh, I'm going to run through a few names for you. really depends on your, your comfort uh, when it comes to risk levels. Obviously, the safest way to play things is producers. That's also going to be the smallest gains, but also, of course, the smallest losses if, I, if I'm full of BS, which I have been before. Um, next on the list would be developers and growth stories. Um, I've got quite a few of those on my list. And the highest risk but highest potential return, highest leverage is, of course, the expiration stories. Um, those have always been near and dear to my heart, but they are, of course, higher risk. And uh, you'll have to decide how far down the food chain you're, you're comfortable going. The first thing I want to show you here is a GDXJ chart, and of course it, it did nothing but go down for two years, much like the gold price itself, of course. The important thing to look at on the right side of this chart, there's two things. I mean, it's put in a higher low, it's put in one higher high. I'd obviously like to see another higher high to give me some more comfort. But the most comforting part of this chart, and it's very important, is not the price, not the levels, it's the volume. Take a look at the volume bars that I've circled on the right side of the chart. Take a look at the volume on the left side of the chart. There is a lot of money. Even though you haven't seen giant moves in a lot of stocks, there is a lot of money coming into this sector. The sector rotation already started. It's not obvious on all the indexes, but it's here already. And I can tell you from anecdotally talking to companies that I follow, companies that have been doing marketing trips to Europe, marketing trips to New York the last month or two, there's, there's a very definite change in tone. The reception is much, much better, and guys are pulling their checkbooks out. You're not going to see that for most companies for a while. You're not going to see it for guys that don't have a good project 
for probably forever, frankly. I mean, there's, there's still a small subset of companies you're dealing with, but there's, there's definitely been a turn. That's a very impressive change in volume. Less impressive, of course, of the venture, and a lot of my compatriots, competitors, whatever you want to call them, take issue with the fact that I even use the venture index, and I, and I understand why they do. Um, you can't really call it a pure resource index. It's probably fair to call it a pure speculative index, perhaps, because there's all kinds of different stuff in it. But I use it in part because it gives you a good sense of the appetite for the really you know, low end of the food chain, the high, highly speculative stuff. Um, it's going to be harder for this index to move because there's half the companies on it are frankly dead in the water and they'll remain that. But I do think you've seen a couple of, an important double bottom got put in last year. I expect a, a higher high than March probably within two or three weeks, I would think, certainly before September. You'll start seeing those volume bars cl climbing. But uh, in the case of the venture, I, I use it just because it's a better, gives you a better feel for how people are feeling about really high-risk stuff in general, not necessarily just resources, but oil and gas, pot, stocks, tech, you know, take your pick. The big bugaboo for, and it was, you know, in large part, it's certainly one of the things, there were a number of things last year, of course, but certainly one of the things that got the blame for the, for the gold price getting clobbered was a change in tone for the Fed and the assumption, correct as it turned out, that the Fed would start tapering and that ultimately we will see, start seeing increases in interest rates. Um, it's taken as gospel that when that happens, the gold price has to tank. This is a very interesting chart I've used a couple of times before in my presentations. Uh, what this shows you is basically gold prices over the last few years. Uh, that's the blue line. The green line is the size of the Fed balance sheet. As you can see, uh, you see these two or three step-ups. There's this little step-up in the middle of the chart is QE2. This big step-up in the green line, and the third part is QE3. As you can see, QE3 was actually negatively, I repeat, negatively correlated to the gold price. There was no positive correlation. And in fact, the correlation even for QE2 was weak at best. You know, the bottom line here is, I, I know everybody harps on it all the time. I get it. I understand the economic theory. Um, monetary inflation, inflation in the monetary base, well, ultimately long term, will probably have an impact on gold and, for that matter, most other commodities that are priced in U.S. dollars. Short term, the correlation is much weaker than, than everybody wants to think. That happens to be a good thing in this case because right now the Fed's tapering, so you definitely don't want the correlation to be strongly positive. Strongly negative is where you want it to be, and that's actually where it is. Most analysts started this year, including me, uh, were expecting a stronger U.S. dollar than we've seen and certainly stronger bond yields than we've seen for the same reason. Fed tapering, starting to talk about you know, increasing interest rates sometime, someday. Basically, it really hasn't happened. The dollar's gone essentially nowhere for nine months. Bond yields actually peaked just before uh, the announcement of the start of the taper. I do think the dollar is probably going to go a bit higher before the end of the year, nothing terribly dramatic. I also think bond yields will probably go a little bit higher. But my, my, uh, basically my, my uh, targets now are much closer to the current prices than they were before. I thought we'd see 10-year yields at 3% easily by the end of the year. We may not. I think part of that is actually a function of supply and demand. Um, because there's a lot less treasuries being printed and there's still quite high demand for them, the bond yield's enormous. Uh, they, they basically just get really good demand at auctions, and they, they've 
the interest rates really haven't had to go up. And that's a good thing. I, I heard a couple of Chuck's comments about mortgages and, and home sales in the U.S., and I would agree with them that I don't think there's a lot of room there for rates to rise in the U.S. without choking off that sector, which they really don't want to do. So personally, I think what will happen is... Uh, I think what will happen is the Fed will very intentionally stay behind the curve. Uh, the next chart I've got in here is a five-year chart of CPI, core CPI, and headline CPI. Nothing dramatic, obviously, uh, but you are seeing a very definite uptick if you look on the right side of that chart. I expect CPI in the U.S. to probably get to 3% this year. You know, not, not the stuff of nightmares by any, by any stretch, but what's important about that is two things. One, any, any kind of increase in inflation... I think is going to tend to move a little bit of money in the direction of commodities, not necessarily just gold, but commodities in general. Um, copper also happens to be a very good inflation hedge. Uh, the other thing that happens is, if you look historically over the very long term, one of the best correlations between periods of rising commodities is periods of negative interest rates, and all negative real interest rates. All negative real interest rates means is that the central bank, whichever one it may be, the Fed in this case is behind the curve. It's not moving interest rates as fast as inflation is going up, so the real interest rates get more and more negative. As it happens, that's also a common theme towards the end of economic expansion, so it's not really that surprising that you would see this strong correlation with commodity prices, which also tend to be best as you get late in the cycle. But that is long-term, that is one of the best correlations. If you want to look for periods where you get rising commodity prices, you look for periods of negative interest rates. I think completely intentionally the Fed plans keep interest rates negative for some time to come. You know, if, the interest, if inflation does get to 3% by the end of the year, if, they, if the Fed hasn't raised rates, then the short-term real interest rate is negative 3%. I don't see Yellen going to positive rates anytime soon, like years and years and years. You know, the economy in the U.S. I think is doing a little better. I'm not, I'm not a gloom and doomer. Um, I think the U.S. economy is going to do okay this year. But I think people that look... At look behind the statistics, including, I think, a lot of the Fed governors say, you know, it's great we're creating 250,000 jobs every month, but they aren't really 250,000 good jobs. Most of the jobs being created are service sector, low-end, low-paying. They don't generate a lot of disposable income, and I think that worries the Fed in particular quite a bit. Um, I, I happen to think it's a good thing that they're using a dual mandate. I'm not that worried about inflation, so I think they should be worrying about people as many people as possible having good jobs. That's, where, that's where, how you want them to think. And because they think that way, I think we're going to have negative interest rates for quite a while. Now, if you look at gold, you know, we all know what happened there. I'm not going to belabor it. I'm sure you've seen 50 of these charts in the last 24 hours. Two bottoms last year. I mean, I think we've come out of it. I'm not expecting anything really dramatic. Um, I think it's important to point out that, to my mind, um, it's not about... You know, oh my God, we're all going to die, the dollar's going to zero, any of that stuff. At the end of the day, I think it's the physical market will determine the price, not short, short term, but in the medium term. And if you're talking physical market, you're talking China and India, period, paragraph. That's where the demand is. Uh, India didn't uh, please gold bugs. People were hoping to see them loosen restrictions on gold imports. They didn't do it. I found it was interesting and, and actually fairly positive that the gold price didn't actually get whacked when they brought that budget out. It actually held up very well to that bad news. Uh, China is doing a little bit better. I do have concerns like everyone else with their debt loads, but really, you know, growth in China, a good monsoon in India, because most of the buying actually gets done by the lower and middle classes in India, 
where you basically get a good harvest, good prices. That's what's going to determine the uh, physical demand going forward, and I expect it to be fairly good towards the end of this year. The other good thing, if you want to call it that, is I think most of the hot money in the Western ETFs that people on Wall Street tend to focus with, the guys that want it out of those, they're out. Um, I think the, le the level where it now is kind of the base level of gold holdings, and I, I think odds are we actually see increases, more increases towards the end of the year in, in ETF holdings like GLD towards the end of the year. And I think that'll be enough to give us, you know, decent prices towards the end of the year, 1400 I'm not expecting miracles. I'd be, I'd be happy to take it if it goes farther than that, but, you know, all I want to see is enough positive momentum that it allows the, the companies I cover to get some traction. Um, you know, if it goes to 1600 wonderful, but I'm not really expecting much more than 1400 at best. Base metals have, have done very well. There's two I want to point out in particular. I guess they're kind of the two big ones, if you will. Copper, to be honest, has been a bit of a surprise to me. It's been a little stronger than I expected. You'll notice on the copper chart, which is the one on the left, there's this big whack down in the middle of that chart. Uh, that was when we were going into the first bankruptcy, and it was the first bankruptcy, which is a bit bizarre, really, uh, in China, major corporate bankruptcy. There's a lot of concern that a lot of the copper that's been bought off of the forward markets and the spot market in the last year or so isn't actually, hasn't actually been consumed yet. And I tend to share that concern. I mean, I look at the way that copper inventories have been drawn down, and it's a real head-scratcher for me. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised they've come down as fast as they have. I, I find it very difficult to shake the notion that a bunch of that copper is actually sitting in unbonded warehouses somewhere, and it's being used as, as, as backing for financing loans and stuff like that. So I've, that's always kind of in the back of my mind that we could see another one of those dumps. And copper will, you know, even assuming that's not true, copper will be in surplus for the next probably... 12 to 18 months, there's a couple of big things that have come on stream. So I'm not expecting the copper price to do anything amazing. I wouldn't be shocked if it went back to 290 again, but I also wouldn't be that worried about it. I mean, 290, a good copper producer, makes a hell of a lot of money. So that, that works for me. Um, zinc is the far more interesting chart for me. You'll, you'll notice on that chart how strong that looks for the last year. Zinc inventories uh, are about 600,000 tons right now. That's not low historically, but that's half of what it was a year ago. And unlike copper, you've, you are not going to be seeing any really large production coming on stream in the next couple of years. There's really nothing big in the pipeline. Three of the largest zinc uh, mines in the world have, have gone off stream in the last couple of years. They've, they've simply run out of reserves. Uh, another one that's, I think, the first or second biggest will be off, offline within 12 months. I don't know what the magic number is when it comes to uh, inventory levels, but you can see people are already starting to worry about it, and it's faster than I expected, to be honest. I expected the zinc chart to look like this next year, not this year. Uh, but I think it'll get to some point, 400,000 tons, 300,000 tons, whatever, in the warehouses, and I think the guys in the futures market will just step on it. I think there's fairly good odds sometimes in the next six to nine months zinc just goes to $1.50. It'll just, it'll just go up. And, and yes, sir, I will speak to that in terms of a couple of companies in a minute. So bottom line, 30% gain, that's still what I expect. Top-down rally, you know, companies with better prospects, companies with money already, although it's getting easier to raise it. Um, the, easiest, the easiest companies that have the best time of it are ones that have already got money in the bank. I'm not bearish on the major markets per se, 
But, uh, you know, I do find it a bit of a, a head shaker that we've gone this long without a correction. So I think it's basically rational and logical to assume at a minimum we're going to see a 10% correction sometime in the next few months. It would be bizarre if we don't. I mean, that's just balance of probabilities. There should be a correction. And that's something to keep in mind when you're trading is that odds are we're going to see a, a, a smackdown on the S&P at some point before the end of the year. Not because I think anything horrible is going to happen. It's just overdue. Uh, uh, the biggest concern, you know, if there's any big concerns out there, um, you know, I'm not going to walk through all the things that are horrible about the United States and blah, 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 blah. Um, you've heard, heard that 50 times, too. If there's any black swans I'm worried about, it's, it's dead in China. And I should say I'm not, I'm not really concerned like China's going to go bankrupt or anything. China's got, there's a huge amount of cash in China. China has far and away, the government does, the world's largest currency reserves, like trillions and trillions and trillions. I mean, they can write a lot of checks if they have to. I'm not really worried about it at that level. The bigger concern is how Chinese people react to two or three big companies going bankrupt or two or three municipalities. And that's actually where the danger is, in my mind, is in municipalities. A lot of the local governments in China have borrowed a lot of money for mega projects, a lot of which are white elephants, and they really don't have a revenue base. So nobody's really figured out quite how they're going to deal with that at the other end. But you know, I, I, I don't think Beijing is going to actually let any of them go bankrupt, but the potential is definitely there. And I think, I actually think it would be smarter Beijing to make an example at some point. So, you know, maybe, maybe one of these days we wake up and find out they've decided to let two or three th things go bankrupt to bring a little bit moral hazard back in the market. I wouldn't expect Beijing and the Asian markets to react too well to that. And of course, the last thing that's always out there is geopolitical you know, Ukraine, Gaza, take your pick. There's, there's always something. Things look a little shakier right now than they have for a while, although most of these things aren't things that I think would really impact Western economies that much, but they can impact psychology. And it may be one of those events that gives us the correction that everybody's still waiting for. Okay, so, you know, economy, blah, 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 metals, blah, 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 whatever, cough and give us some stock picks for Christ's sakes. That's what we're here for. Okay, I will. I'm going to run through some of these quick, and I, I, I'm going to mention two or three names. Um, I know who my buddy Brent Cook talked about yesterday, and he and I follow some of the same stocks, and I didn't see any point sort of reinventing the wheel, because you guys all probably all listened to him yesterday. So three companies I know he talked about that I also follow and, and, I, and I like equally are Reservoir, which is uh, RMC, uh, Focus, FCV, and uh, I, I think Rocks Gold, he also talked about yesterday, which is ROG. I also follow those three. I, didn't, I don't have any more detail on them today just because I know he covered them yesterday. But uh, two, of them are, two of them are developers. Uh, all three of them are, I guess, I would call development stage. They all have discoveries that are, that are well advanced. Uh, Focus is phosphate. Rocks Gold is, as the name implies, gold. And Reservoir is gold, copper, and Serbia. Great discovery that they have with Freeport. Uh, you know, basically, I'll, I'm going to give you a little more color on, on, on each of these. This first slide here, that's the two producers I decided to talk up quickly about today. Like I said, producers are, you know, they'll, they'll have lower, lower beta, if you will, uh, lower leverage to changes in, in metal prices, but obviously they're the safest way to go. Uh, they're going to, you know, they've got the least downside because these are companies that are in production and making money. Nevsun's a company I've followed for years. They have the Bisha mine in, in Eritrea, fantastic mine. Uh, that thing just spits up money like you would not believe. Uh, these guys are up to just about 500 million now, I think, in working capital. 
Uh, it's a very interesting mine, and I, I've, one of the reasons why we followed her for years is more out of luck than planning, I can assure you, their timing happened to be perfect. They started mining Bisha just as the gold price was really taking off. The top part of the Bisha deposit is oxides. You get down below the water table, you're into what's called supergene, which is very high-grade copper. That's what they're mining now. In about two years, you'll see that basically the copper grade will drop off, the zinc grade will come up as they go into sulfides, and then for eight or ten years after that, it'll be a high-grade zinc mine. So their, their timing has worked out really well when it comes to changes in commodity prices. Uh, one thing I've been waiting for, everyone's been waiting for with these guys, is when do they do a deal? When is there some M&A? Like I said, they've got almost 500 million bucks in working capital. By the time they're really into the zinc and out of the copper, they'll probably have seven or 800 million in working capital. This thing makes a lot of money. People keep waiting to go, like, when are you going to do a deal? I think the problem they've had is Beach is just such an amazing mine. They look at other things and kind of go, yeah, it doesn't really look that special. But at some point, if they don't do something, someone's going to do something to them. Because the bigger that working capital number gets, the more tempting a target they're going to be. So that, that one's a good one. You know, you want any of these producers, you want to buy on commodity weakness for whatever their main commodity is. I mean, you don't chase them when, when copper's going crazy. You don't chase them when gold's going crazy. You, try, you, you put in stink bits and try to catch them when gold has a crappy day or copper has a crappy day. Get yourself the best price. Silvercrest, gold, silver producer, another one I followed since inception, actually. I'm good friends with management, great management team. These guys have always hit their targets. They raised the money for Santa Elena at the bottom of the market, got it done, got it in production. They're shifting now. They're in the midst of shifting from oxide production, a heap leach, to sulfide production, which is a mill. The mill is just getting going now. They'll have a little bit of a dip. They should have a little bit of a dip this quarter and next quarter in their production because they're shifting from one to the other. But after that, you should probably see 30 or 40% increase in production over the next year or so. They're actually one of the lowest cost silver producers around. I mean, all of you that are silver bugs probably know that most silver producers, for some reason, can't seem to actually make money, <laughs> which is really annoying. Um, these guys do. I mean, this is just, it's just a really, really good management group. I mean, that's the, the, as, as much as anything. It's a great mine, but it's a great management group. These guys, I just haven't seen these guys misstep, and I don't expect to. So for that reason alone, they're, they're a good one to follow. In terms of development level companies, um, and where I can, I will note who's here. Kamenak, of course, does have a booth here, so these are guys you can go and quiz. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep it short because they do have a booth here. Very robust, heap leachable deposit in the Yukon. Uh, I won't bore you with the eight eight hundred million years of history, but for 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 various reasons that that are too complicated to go into here. A large chunk of the Yukon was never actually glaciated. So unlike almost all of Canada, there is actually this large amount of oxide material sitting on top. They're going to take advantage of that. It's basically high-grade shoots. They're mesothermal veins. They're going to mine down to maybe a couple hundred meters. One of the nice things with this, uh, I think by the time they're all said and done, they're going to concentrate on two or three of the higher-grade shoots. So that means the first couple of years, the gold production is actually quite high. Um, the metallurgy in this thing is amazing. Like it's, it's really got fantastic metallurgy. It's got a great management team. Um, Ira's done a fantastic job since she's taken the company over. And if you want to see a, you know, a vote of confidence, those of you that follow the stock, if you see that last spike in the stock that, about a week ago, that was a placement done by Ross Beatty and Lucas Lundin. Um, and if you want to get a vote of confidence, I can't think of better guys than that. They bought 9.9% each put $14 million into the bank. Um, 
I think it's good to go. It's just they're going to have to get through feasibility, but I'm, I'm quite sure the numbers are going to be quite good. Line one's another one that's I followed for a while, and the turnaround, I think, and this thing is happening as we speak. If you look on the right side of the chart, it's, it's right on the right side, so you can't really see it, but there's a big volume spike there. There had been a persistent seller for the last few months, and it looks to me like they finally got that guy out a couple of days ago. There was a 3 million share volume spike. Uh, this is a smaller deposit. It's in Fiji, high-grade veins, uh, 750,000 ounces, give or take, 10 or 11 grams. Uh, I expect to see a mining permit on this like very soon, like within a month, I think. They've got all the other permits, the main permits that they need to get for surface, which is actually the more difficult one to do because you need all of the community approval. They already have all that stuff. I know the plan for these guys is they will start out relatively small, 600 tons a day, 50,000 ounces a year. One thing I should note is there is a lot of target that isn't drilled off yet. This really isn't drilled to depth. They really hasn't chased it that far along strike. I think ultimately it'll be two or three million ounces there, but they've made the decision they just want to put this into production. And no, you won't find that when you check their news releases, but trust me, you're going to see news releases soon saying we're just going to do this. Um, they, they've run some numbers and they think they can get in production for 30 million bucks, so I don't think financing is going to be a, tr a problem. The founder of the company is a, a guy that's done this two or three times before, and I think they'll do it again. So that's, that's one that's happening as we speak, so I keep a very close eye on that one. Constantine Metals, this is on the base metal side. They have a booth here, and I strongly recommend you talk to them before, before they leave today. This is a company I've followed for a long time. I'm a big fan of management. Uh, Garfield, Wayne, Darwin, uh, a really great geologist, all three of these guys. Garfield and, and Wayne picked this project up several years ago. It's in Alaska. I tend not to be a huge fan of Alaska most of the time because I don't like the logistics. This property is an exception. It's 30 kilometers from Haines, which is an all-weather port and already has already has concentrate shipping facilities for a, a mine in, in the Yukon. They're probably three or four kilometers from a paved highway and the power line. Uh, they're in a, an area where I don't expect them to have any problems with the locals. There's no salmon creeks, none of that stuff. They started drilling this thing five or six years ago. They did a couple of financings cheaper than I would have liked uh, when the markets were horrible four or five years ago. That's why they got a few more shares out than I'd like, about $120 million. But they do have several large shareholders. I know some of these guys, and they're not going anywhere. They did a great option agreement last year with a company called Doha Metals in Japan. Doha is, Doha is basically a smelter, refiner, and seller of base metals. That's a 100-year-old company that started in a famous VMS camp in Japan. It's a very good deal. Doha's got to spend $22 million bucks to earn 49% of, of Palmer, not 51, 49. These guys retain control all the way through it. They just started drilled. They've got about, I would say, their last official uh, estimate was 4.5 million tons. I would say there's somewhere between 5 and 6 million tons. There's a few holes done since then that they haven't, they haven't updated it yet. I'd say probably closer to 6. They just announced a hole a couple of days ago, 22 meters. I'm doing this from memory, so don't quote me. 22 meters of about 2.4% copper, 4.5% zinc, about 0.4 grams gold and 10 grams of silver, I think. That's a really good VMS hole. That's about 300 bucks a ton across 222 meters. It's towards one edge of a large downhole conductor. This is the first real test they had of it. Um, if that downhole conductor has half that thickness at those grades, this thing will be big enough to be a mine. 
They're not that far away. VMS deposits tend not to be huge when they go in production, 8, 10 million tons. It's not like some massive um, disseminated gold thing. 8 or 10 million tons is actually a fair size VMS deposit. And I think if they get a few good holes in here, I think they're going to be, they'll be over the finish line. They could be this year. And DOA really wants the zinc concentrates. That's, why, that's really why DOA is there. So I think they'll be a very supportive partner. Um, there's a lot of drill holes coming on this one. They've only reported two. I'm actually flying up to the site uh, in about a week to look at it. Um, I'll, be, I'll be sending something a lot more, you know, a lot more um, digestible and detailed and pictures and all that stuff to my subscribers once, once I get back from that trip. But uh, I'm really happy with what I'm seeing in this, and this is a very good-looking, really good-looking project. This one, I, I need to preface uh, this company by saying my late brother David and I were two of the three founders of this company, so I am not objective. I do not rate this stock in the newsletter, but everybody knows, all of my readers know about my position with it, so they always ask about it, so I do update it. But, you know, I don't use the B word on this because of uh, how much of it I own already. They're in the Dominican Republic. Um, one of the stocks some of my readers know that I, I followed, did really well a couple of years ago, GoldQuest, made a great discovery in the Dominican. It's in an area in the center of the Dominican called the Chireo Gold Belt. Um, precipitate, not coincidentally, I can assure you, went down and picked up some projects very quickly next door to it. Um, it's been a crappy financing environment, so they've been very, very cheap and efficient about how they got the work done. Um, but they found one area called Ginger Ridge. They've done geochemistry mapping, rock geochemistry IP. Very nice-looking, coherent target on this property. 800-meter uh, IP target, two-kilometer geochem target. Um, I can tell you that you will see a, a release very, very soon saying that the drill program has started. I think this one's got really good leverage, and God knows it's got one of the best shareholders I know. <laughs> the last one I'm going to mention, this one's a little farther out. Um, in terms of time, uh, it's a company called Inlet Resources. I think it's INL. They just got created by a merger between Inlet and Citation. Essentially, they have a very large project in the Guerrero Gold Belt. Um, if you guys follow Juniors, you probably, you've probably heard of it. If you want a really good example of really good projects and success in that belt, there is a company that's, that's here called Caden Resources. Um, but there's a big mine that Gold Corp runs there. New Strikes had, big, had a big discovery there. Cadence had discoveries there. The biggest land holding in the area is actually southeast of these guys. It's, it's by Cisco, Cisco Royalties now. Their new spin-out company has a million hectares there. They're doing a big program. Basically, after this merger, these guys ended up with about a 42,000 hectare project, which is large for this area. It's right on trend with most of the discoveries. There are intrusives on it. Those intrusives, these are scarring deposits in this area, so the intrusives being there is quite important. They've done a bunch of targeting. They probably need to do a little bit more. Um, the, the program I've seen laid out is about 8,000 meters of drilling that I think probably doesn't start till September, say. They'll probably do a little work in advance. They are funded already. They've got three and a half, four million bucks in the bank. So if you're looking for a drill play for the fall, that's a good one. And that's all I got. Um, I'm just going to go back here and note uh, all of those slides had the hraadvisor.com in the bottom. If you go to my website, Right side of the screen, you can sign up to be on the free list. You sign up to be on the free list, I do send out, like, offers, basically. You know, here's, here's this month's or whatever cheap offer to become a subscriber. That's probably the best way to get a deal is just throw yourself on that list. Um, and if these guys 
will send this, let me send the presentation to all of you, I'll do that as well, and then you'll just have it. Thank you very much.